The Count of Monte Cristo, written by Alexandre Dumas, is the story of a young French sailor, Edmond Dantes, who is framed in a political plot by his best friend and the local prosecutor. On the day of his wedding, Dantes is hauled away to the prison of Chateau d'If, where he is tortured and kept in some very miserable conditions. Now, while in prison, he actually meets a priest who educates him and helps him become a civilized man. The priest also confides in him the location of an ancient buried treasure. Upon the priest's death, Dantes escapes after 14 years in prison and locates the treasure. With his new wealth, he transforms himself into the Count of Monte Cristo and begins plotting his revenge on all those who had him unjustly imprisoned. Now, as the story progresses, Dantes grows uncertain about the vicious revenge he is planning. While in prison, he, has, he etches into the wall of his cell, God will give me justice. But as he wonders, is he right to execute God's justice on his own behalf? Is there a difference between justice and revenge? Is there even a God? And if so, why has God let this injustice happen to him? Now, Dantes is successful in enacting his revenge, not to spoil the plot for you, but the book's been out almost 200 years, so that's kind of on you. <laughs> but he does find that revenge comes with a cost to his own soul. I thought of Dumas' book as I was studying our passage for the morning. It's a passage from the book of Romans on the temptation we all feel to enact revenge against our enemies. We all have enemies political enemies, interpersonal enemies, workplace enemies, religious enemies. No, our enemies might not plot to have us thrown into the Chateau d'If, but we all have enemies who hurt us. They steal from us, they insult us, they ignore us, they disappoint us. Like Dantes, we wonder how should we respond when we are hurt? Is vengeance justified, if even maybe just a little bit? If not, why not? Can we expect God to give us justice? If so, how? And when? And what do we do in the meantime? These are the questions that Paul raises in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. We are in an extended study of Paul's letter to the Romans here at Rooftop in a series that we are currently calling Morph. If you don't know, Romans is a very big, important letter in the New Testament, and we are actually in the final section of Romans, sort of the practical application section of the letter, where Paul describes what the gospel of Christianity means for our lives. And we're calling this particular series Morph because uh, the entire point of this final section of the letter is that Christians should change. Christians should be transformed. The word that Paul uses for change and transform is to morph. As he would suggest, if, if you're not really changing, you're probably not a Christian because Christians morph. Christians change. And one of the ways that Christians change, morph, is in how they respond to people who hurt us. So with that introduction, let me go ahead and read to you the passage from Romans that we're going to study together this morning, and then we shall discuss it. It's Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as I mentioned, this passage comes from the practical application section of the book of Romans, when Paul is describing uh, what the gospel of Christianity, what he has kind of summarized in chapters 1 through 11, what that looks like in the lives of Christ's followers. And to summarize Paul's instruction here, his point is that Christians should pursue peace with other people and not stoke conflict. Christians should bless their enemies and leave payback to God. We should not be overcome by evil impulses to retaliate, but we should overcome evil with good. To put it this way, Christians should be the type of people who respond not in kind to people who harm us, but people who respond in kindness. Not in kind, but kindness. In this respect, Paul has taken a page straight out of the teachings of Jesus Christ, who tells us to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us. And Jesus famously demonstrated this by accepting the torment of the crucifixion and even praying for and forgiving the men who were driving nails into his hands and sticking spears into his side. What did Jesus say as this was happening to him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Probably you know this about Christianity. Even many non-Christians know how blessing enemies lies at the very heart of the gospel. Frankly, it's one of the most attractive things uh, about the message of Christianity. Probably you also know, though, how difficult and countercultural responding in kindness, not in kind, is. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. We don't live in a dog-bless-dog world or a dog-love-dog world. Getting even is one of the most natural things we do. Entire religions are built on the concept of karma, that you get what you deserve. In its purest form, revenge is justice exercised on the behalf of an aggrieved party. That's what revenge is in its purest form. It's justice exercised on behalf of an aggrieved party, and there's nothing wrong with just revenge, we think. When Inigo Montoya finds the six-fingered man who killed his father in front of him when he was a young boy, none of us think, after he kind of strikes that guy down, none of us think, oh, Inigo, overreaction. None of us think that. When Maximus kills Commodus at the end of Gladiator, nobody thinks, well, that was just unnecessary. When Pap Captain Picard starts a war with the Borg, who have been uh, assimilating all life forms throughout the universe, when he goes to war with the Borg, nobody thinks, no, Captain Picard, you just don't need to do that. No, 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 we think, you go, Jean-Luc. Make it so. This thirst for revenge, for righteous revenge, is perfectly human. It's actually perfectly divine, too. 
And God is just. And we were created in his image, which is one of the reasons why we feel this thirst for justice. God is the one who in the Old Testament gives us the law of retaliation, the lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That came from God. In fact, the Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words in the Old Testament uh, for justice also means righteous. Justice served is a righteous cause. We feel this urge when we are wronged or when we see wrongdoing. To not feel the urge for righteous revenge in the face of evil means something has actually gone wrong inside of us. To hear about the events at Gosnell and not feel the strong desire to see hellfire come down upon profiteering abortionists is not right. To read about American history and learn how so-called Christian imperialists oppressed and murdered Native Americans, kidnapped and enslaved African people, imprisoned Japanese immigrants. To read this history and not feel your blood boil is to not understand God's hatred of sin. More personally, to not feel the thirst for revenge at the way your boss hosed you or the way your father hurt you or the way your spouse betrayed you or the way your your friend abandoned you to not feel the thirst for righteous revenge is to not know the justice of god now just because vengeance is perfectly human perfectly divine and entirely justified does not mean however that it is ours to take in fact, here in Romans, Paul is quite explicit that despite its justification, revenge is not ours. If anything, we should seek the opposite, love and bless our enemies. Even as our society rightfully seeks to punish wrongdoers through the criminal court system, that is society's responsibility, not necessarily ours, at least not on a personal level. Ours is to bless our enemies, not to punish them. Now, why? Why would Paul, and more importantly Jesus, tell us to not do such a perfectly natural thing as to pay back our enemies for how they've hurt us? Well, in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, uh, which is, if you want to know, like my favorite book of all time, uh, author Philip Yancey uh, has a couple answers to that question. One of the reasons that he thinks, that he says we should not take revenge is because revenge has a tendency to poison the heart. It turns us into people we don't want to become. It's one of the reasons why Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, because he recognizes that the evil of revenge has a tendency to overcome us and turn us into people we don't want to become. In order to get back at people who hurt us, we kind of have to become the, people, the sort of people that hurt others. In order to get back at people who insult us, you know, it's you might have to become the sort of people who insult. Revenge does something to us that we don't necessarily want to happen. Also, another reason revenge is not ours to pursue is that revenge never settles the score. We just think it does, we want it to, but it really doesn't. We just think we're ending this, but we're really just giving hatred new life. When our neighbor parks his car on our lawn and we get back by blowing our leaves into his yard, it's not like that's the end of it. Then our neighbor blows his leaves on our yard, and then we park our car in his lawn, and then he has his dog poop on our driveway, and then we accidentally knock over his trash cans, and then he accidentally breaks our side view mirror. 
and on and on it goes. I'm sure you actually know this, but most of the world's conflicts today are actually centuries old. They are tit-for-tat conflicts that started smaller in another time, in another form, but grew larger and are still going on. Jews and Palestinians, Americans and Iranians, English and Irish. World War II was largely an escalation of issues left unresolved from World War I. Revenge never resolves conflicts. It extends them, makes them worse. No matter how righteous, revenge rarely settles the score. It turns us into people we don't want to become. But if we shouldn't pursue revenge against people who deserve it, what should we do? Well, that's what Paul talks about here in this passage. Instead of tit-for-tat revenge, Paul gives us some more positive commands on how we are to respond to those who hurt us. And with the time I have left, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about if not revenge, then what? First, if not revenge, Paul tells us to trust God. As he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to revenge, I will repay. One of our tendencies when we are hurt by others is not to punish, it's actually to overpunish. We don't just want to see our enemies suffer. We want to see them suffer badly. When my wife forgets vanilla Greek yogurt at the grocery store and I can't have my morning smoothies, it's very important that she understand what a terrible mistake she has made. I figure a week of the silent treatment is more than justified. When my daughter spills apple juice all over the floor and makes a terribly sticky mess, she really needs to understand that that absolutely cannot happen. I think 15 minutes of ranting and raving is perfectly okay in that situation. When it comes to responding to wrongdoing, as angry, vengeful people, we tend to over-respond. Fairness, not our specialty. It's actually why the uh, law of retaliation is in the Old Testament. It's not just to prescribe punishment, it's actually to regulate punishment. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Not two eyes for an eye, or an ear and a scalp and a kneecap for a tooth. <laughs> no, a tooth, you just get a tooth. Okay, can a scalp too? No, just a tooth. This is why we have judges. This is why the framers of the American Constitution said the punishment must fit the crime. The framers understood that as aggrieved sinners, we want the punishment to exceed the crime, not fit it. As sinners, we're not good at fairness. I mean, aside from being generally bloodthirsty people, we usually don't know the whole story. There's a lot of extenuating circumstances that we're blind to because we're just mad. That's part of the reason we have judges, and it's one of the reasons that Paul tells us to let God decide, leave room for his wrath, he writes. He'll do a better job sorting things out. Besides which, anytime someone sins against us, they're not really just sinning against us, right? They're sinning against God. And their crime against us is, if you think about it, relatively insignificant compared to the way that they have broken God's law. That's why the Bible tells us not to retaliate, because Revenge is God's business. 
Now, of course, this does take patience and restraint and trust. Trust that God will not let our enemies go unpunished. To leave room for God's wrath is, frankly, to let people get away with stuff without retaliating. And that's hard. I have a long list of people in my mind and in my heart who have hurt me over the years, some very badly. I've been very tempted to respond to these hurts with gossip and harsh words and guilt trips, and I will confess and have confessed to God that I give in to those temptations every now and then. Instead, though, I have had to learn, and I am learning to do something different, something difficult. I've had to learn to walk away. It's kind of like, and that's difficult. I mean, when someone cuts you off on the highway, what do you feel like you want to do? Speed up and cut them off. That makes no sense at all. It's going to kill all kinds of people. (laughs) Just let them drive off. Walk away. I've had to learn to walk away and trust that if God sees something here that needs punishing, he will do it and he will do it fairly because I know that I will not. Now, that doesn't mean I don't try to address these situations if they, or solve them if I can, but I know that vengeance is definitely not mine to give. Trust God. Secondly, pursue peace. As Paul writes, do not repay, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We should work hard to maintain healthy relationships with others. We should be careful in our relationships to not let them get unnecessarily contentious. And we should do this with everybody, not just with the people who are easy to get along with. This is what Paul says. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Now, that's fairly clear, right? But just to be clear, (laughs) even clearer, everybody means... Everybody. Everybody includes everybody, even those who belong to social groups that you don't particularly care for. Crazy Democrats, intolerant Republicans, transgender socialists, illegal immigrants, dependent minorities, angry fundamentalists, lazy teenagers. Everybody. This is important because it's actually what distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world. You know as well as I do that it's relatively easy to be nice and kind and forgiving to people who like you and people who are like you and people that you like. But that's relatively easy compared to what Jesus commands. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you love those who love you, Jesus says, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only those who are your own people, What are you doing any better than anybody else? Even the pagans do that. Pursue peace with everybody. Now, of course, that's not always possible. Paul acknowledges that. He's very clear that we can only do so much. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. You know, peace takes two people, and sometimes two people, one person doesn't want to do it, and that kind of ends that. Sometimes it's not possible. The other person has no interest in peace. Maybe your ex has no interest in getting along. <laughs> Maybe your friend has clearly moved on. Maybe your neighbor is just not interested. I get it. But that's not our excuse to not try. 
And oftentimes when we're in conflict with someone, what do we normally do? Here's what we do. We make some sort of half-hearted effort that, not unsurprisingly, doesn't work. And then we throw up our hands and say, well, we tried. I did everything I could. But did we really? If we tried, it was like barely a try. We can almost always go a little bit further. We can almost always be a little bit kinder. We can always take a little bit more initiative to get along. What does Paul say? As far as it depends on you, and we can always go further. Question. That person that you're in conflict with right now, what's another step you can take towards peace? Another phone call, another email, another prayer, a gift, a confession. It might not work, but be honest. Have you gone as far as you can? As far as it depends on you. In the original draft to this message, I had another section here, a multi-paragraphed section about social media and uh, how this verse applies in a social media context. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know as well as I do that it's really easy to be our worst Christian selves on Facebook, on social media. There's just uh, no, no accountability there. I had to cut it because of time, and it really doesn't take that much discussion anyway. It's very simple. Be nice on social media. If you can't be your absolute best Christian self on social media, stop embarrassing Jesus and get off of social media. Okay? It's very simple. That's it. Let's continue with the message. (laughs) Pursue peace, trust God, and thirdly, do good. As Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Quite radically, uh, Paul says that instead of enacting vengeance on our enemies, we should do good to them. Uh, If our enemy is is hungry and we have some food, what should we do there? (laughs) Feed him. If our enemy is thirsty and we have something to drink, How should we handle that situation? Give him something to drink. It's really that simple. So not only should we not retaliate, but we should bless those who hurt us. Now, why in God's name would we do that? Because in so doing, we touch their conscience. We show them a better way. That's what the phrase, heap burning coals on their head, which is a fantastic image, actually probably means. In the Old Testament, it's a quote, heap burning coals on their head, and it probably means to sear their conscience. When we choose to respond not in kind, but in kindness, we speak to our enemies' humanity, and we trigger something within them, maybe their conscience, maybe their sense of shame, maybe the Holy Spirit, and we show them a new way forward. As, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, in not retaliating to the violence of his enemies, He awakened a sense of shame within the oppressor and challenged his false sense of superiority. Or like uh, President Lincoln after the Civil War. After the Civil War, uh, some of Lincoln's northern political allies were telling him to stick it to the South. I mean, they did the secession. I mean, that's terrible. They almost blew up our country. And Lincoln said, no, that's not going to help anybody. 
He dumped tons of resources into his plan for reconstruction, saying this, do not I destroy my enemies by making them my friends. In fact, I'm not a historian, clearly, but uh, one of the reasons why we still, why America still has this northern-southern conflict thing going on, I don't know if you've ever realized that, there's still a lot of conflict in the north and south, is because President Lincoln was assassinated and President Johnson came up and rescinded a lot of reconstruction efforts and stuck it to the south. And here we are. If you hate how you're being treated by someone else and you want them to stop treating you that way, your best shot is most definitely not to stick it to them. Your best shot is to treat them with kindness and grace. It, it, it does something to them. Uh, quick story, then we'll be done. <clears throat> In the book, Not by the Sword, uh, Catherine Watterson tells the true story of a Jewish cantor, a cantor is basically a Jewish worship leader, named Michael Weiser and his wife, Julie. After moving to Omaha, Nebraska in 1991 to work with a synagogue there, the Weisers started getting death threats uh, from a man who said he represented the Nazis and the KKK. Uh, this man would call them names, denied the Holocaust, threatened their lives, wouldn't leave them alone. The Weisers contacted police and learned a little bit more about this man who had a record and a reputation. His name was actually Larry Trapp. He was the Grand Dragon, which I guess is the KKK way of saying president, of the Ku Klux Klan of Nebraska. Now, the Weisers took precautions to protect themselves, but Cantor Weiser also did something radical. He reached out. He got Larry's phone number. He called him, leaving comments on his voicemail. He asked Larry why he was treating them this way. He actually said nice things to him. He wished Larry a good day. Knowing Larry was disabled and in a wheelchair, he reminded Larry that the Nazis weren't too fond of disabled people and he would have been the first to go in the Holocaust. He even offered to help around Larry's house and perhaps go to the store to buy some groceries. Trapp was, as he says later, flabbergasted that his tactics did not seem to be intimidating the Wisers. And when the cantor called one night, Larry decided to pick up the phone and tell this Jew to stop harassing him. <laughs> Instead, they had a very awkward conversation. They hung up, but then they had another, then they had another, then they had another. Eventually, the Wisers offered to bring dinner over one night. He agreed. The Wisers told some friends where they were going, told them to call the police if they weren't home by 8 p.m. But it was a fine dinner. As he got to know the Wisers as real people, Larry began leaving behind some of his racist, white supremacist beliefs. In fact, the local chapter of the KKK began calling and harassing Larry for giving up the cause. A few years later, after being shown the kindness and the love of God by the people he had tried to torment, Larry converted to Judaism. When our enemies expect us to respond in kind, there is power in responding in kindness. It can break through the wall of hatred and sin that surrounds the human heart. In fact, let's just go ahead and get specific here before we close. Who is somebody in your life that you're at odds with? Who's somebody in your life that you're at odds with right now? Spouse? Coworker? Neighbor, relative, child, friend, a member of a social group you can't stand, pastor? Who is somebody you are at odds with? How have these people hurt you? How have they made your life worse? I'm sure that they have. I know the temptation to get back at them. I know the temptation to respond in kind. But what's that going to do? It's going to poison your heart. It's going to make things worse. 
what would it look like to respond in kindness instead? How can you overcome the temptation to evil by doing good to them instead? How are they hungry, and how can you feed them? How are they thirsty, and how can you give them something to drink? Blessing our enemies is God's command, his expectation for how we should morph, and so it does not go unsaid. It is the very definition of hypocrisy to not treat our enemies with such kindness and grace, right? Why? Well, that's what the book of Romans is all about. I mean, in Romans, Paul has made clear that we are God's enemies, deserving of his wrath. Because of our idolatry, because of our disobedience, we deserve God's punishment, his revenge. But God is a God of love. His son offered to come to earth and take the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we could be forgiven and justified in his sight. God, our God, had every right to respond in kind to our disobedience, to our violence, but he responded in kindness instead. Jesus Christ is the example, the demonstration of God's kindness. For us to plot revenge on our enemies in even the smallest way, whoever they are, frankly, it means we don't get it. We don't get the gospel. We don't get Jesus. To be recipients of God's kindness, even though we are his enemies, and to not show that kindness to our enemies is spiritual hypocrisy of the highest order. This is not our calling. This is not how we morph. As Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The surest way we can show kindness to the enemies who hurt us is to understand how deeply we've sinned against God and yet how he has shown us his kindness in response. Maybe you don't believe that yet, that God loves you enough to forgive you of your sins. Maybe you believe it, but you haven't declared it. Well, I want to invite you this morning to declare your belief in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. I want to invite you this morning to become a Christian. That's what we do here at Rooftop. We make Christians. It's really easy to become a Christian. You just tell God and others that you believe in Jesus, who died for your sins, you believe that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again. You declare that belief and you receive God's forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit who can morph and transform you, make you become a different person altogether. You can get baptized to declare that belief publicly. You can do that right now where you're at in your seat. If you want to do it after the service, I'll be happy to pray for you. If you want to let us know on your info card, we can do it, for, do it later. Either way, it is by receiving the kindness of God in the sacrifice of Jesus, a sacrifice we did not deserve, that allows us to bless and not curse our enemies. It is by the love of Jesus in our hearts that we cannot be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not in kind, but in kindness. Let's pray, and then we've got a couple more songs to sing. Father, we recognize and we thank you in this moment, for not responding in kind to our crimes against you, to our disobedience, to our idolatry, but responding in kindness. You saw our sin, and though I'm sure it was tempting to want to just give up on your creation, you came down into it. And you revealed your love through the teachings of your son who assumed the cross willingly enduring its shame and scorn making it possible for us to be forgiven I pray that as that message transforms us it also transforms how we respond to the people in our lives who hurt us and harm us some very deeply I know there are people in this room who have been 
deeply injured and harmed by their enemies. I'm not talking fender benders in the parking lot. I'm talking about people who have, whose reputations have been destroyed, whose integrity has been compromised, who have been shamed and abused. How can we, to whom those terrible things have happened, ever have it within us to respond in kindness to our perpetrators and assailants? Only by knowing your love and your grace, which you have revealed to us in Jesus. Thank you for this chance to learn from your word this morning, to praise you for who you are. I pray that your message change and changes and transforms us. And pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and by the power of your Holy Spirit, who gives us strength to become the people that we already are in your eyes.